And so I'm giving away all of the tricks and secrets uh, to traditional cider making right now as they were given away to me. Welcome to Thrive in the Future podcast, positive solutions to help you thrive, designing your intentional life, homesteading, gardening, and rediscovering culture and tradition. Are you thriving this summer? Join the thriving community telegram group where we share our real world successes and failures on homesteading, gardening, and designing your intentional life at signup.thriveinthefuture.com. Comfrey crowns and root cuttings are now in stock at grownuttrees.com and it's time to place your orders for chestnut seedlings that'll ship in November and December. Chestnut seedlings grown here in the Midwest and adapted to the Midwest. That's at grownuttrees.com. Welcome back to Thrive in the Future. This week, I have Mike Thomas from Catholic Land Movement back with me. We're going to talk about apple orchards and apple cider. So, Mike, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Scott. Uh, enjoy your podcast and uh, enjoy being here and uh, happy to get the platform to talk about apples, orchards, cider, and uh, Catholic Land Movement. Yeah, so this weekend you had your conference. How did that go? It was in- incredible. Um, I had I had a cannonball run out to the Midwest and uh, uh, landed in Indiana. I was very impressed by the organizing out there. The Catholic Land Movement, as we talked in in our last session together, organizes under the principle of subsidiarity, and to see the fruit of that in in another location, far far away. Uh, from from anything I've really had too much of a hand in, you know, to, to see the seeds of the the, the movement uh, take root and blossom, and all these people and various groups and, and organizations be very enmeshed in the organizing, and then to to witness a conference uh, uh, and 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 the excitement and the energy, it was just a it was a great gift, great gift. How many people were there? You think? You know, there's an official registration table somewhere who is, uh, you know, that they're going to get back uh, official numbers to the main organization, which I would imagine somewhere between four and five hundred. That would be that would be my guest. Um, there's a beautiful picture that was taken of all the participants on a hillside, and it was quite large. So wow. um, five hundred people. That's amazing. And maybe like four, but but you know, four four plus somewhere in between the two. Yeah. Right. Right. Gosh, to be able to put that together and and coordinate that, and especially because this is a pretty new thing, right? Uh, yep. O- over the past four years, it's definitely taken shape. Um, as the the power of subsidiarity, and you know, to to a, a parable that I often talk about it is the parable of the sower. Um, our times are ripe. Yeah, the the soil is cultivated for a movement of this sort to to take root and grow and blossom. And, and, and I think that's what we're witnessing, you know, so each to our place and our various duties and, uh, uh you know, a, a performance, uh, coupling that with the performance of our virtue and like, it has a life of its own. And so, uh, it's, uh, it was remarkable to meet the people in the Midwest. Uh, the, the there's a retreat center, the Edelweiss retreat house and, uh, the order of the family that was uh, organizing that place. And, and and their work and and the the, the power of their witness uh, it was was quite impressive and so um i was very very grateful to 
get a taste of what Catholic land movement organizing in the Midwest uh, looks like and uh, and very excited to see where it goes in the next little bit. So we have a very strong uh, Northeast region. We have a very strong Midwest region. It's, it's likely that we'll see uh, a developing and, and kind of maturation of a, of a Southern region, Mid-Atlantic, West Coast, all those are in the works. So stay tuned. Uh, Catholic land movement is very alive and very, very healthy. And uh, hopefully, you know, pointing more of the temporal order towards uh, towards Christ over the the next little bit. So I'm 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 very excited about about it. That's great. Yeah, that's really neat. Especially like you said, four years um, as things went back to air quotes normal. Then uh, you know a lot of the prepper groups and everything they just fizzled out, or you know, or people acquiesced for the employers and stuff like that. And then uh, so you know, there's not much interest in all of that in that movement. But you've got something that is more core that's been able to transcend the the fear of the pandemic and then make it sticky, right? Which is good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think part of it is that um, when you deal with the uh, on a principle level, what motivates uh, prepping um, is essentially a practical assessment of the fra- fra- fragility of modernity uh, in in a practical sense. You know, industrialism and uh, uh, agriculture, and in, in, in the modern context, right? You get this practical assessment, and you're like, mm, maybe these things aren't as solid as 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 uh we're led to believe by modern propaganda but then if you actually follow the principles there you find a, a, an intellectual path which ultimately leads into a, a, a theological path and as you begin to kind of really dig into those questions and where modernity is refuted in in the intellectual and the theological you find a very a very solid foundation of catholicism and so with that um, you get you get this uh, a much longer process, and so to to the to the idea of it being sticky, I think the the pandemic and the various failure of modern institutions began to lead people down that path, and the Catholic land movement is an, is a testimony to people who kind of uh, had the fearlessness to follow it through, not just the practical, but also the intellectual principles, which eventually led them to theological questions which they find answers in, in Catholic uh, uh, theology and social teaching. And so they're like, so, so here they are and they're like, let's, let's continue. And so, um, so to that remnant, um, the Catholic land movement gives some type of like temporal organization and like a rubric to be like, Hey, let's keep on engaging more people and carry what you learn through these difficult times forward uh, in like a, an organizational way. And so um. And so, yeah, I'm very excited about it. I'm very excited about where it's going. I'm very excited about where it's been. I'm very excited about what it is uh, in in the present and the relationships I've gained from it are are quite dear to me and uh, just can seem seem to be multiplying. Uh, so, um, so yeah, so it was a great weekend. Looking forward to where it goes from here. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's very encouraging. So let's talk a little bit about apple orchards and cider. I've been really impressed with the pictures you're putting on Twitter and the size of your operation there. Um, so you said, give a little background on your, on your cider operation for the folks that didn't hear a little bit about it the last time. 
Yeah. Um, so probably a little bit over a decade now, I've been planting uh, what's understood as bittersweet cider trees. Maybe we'll 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 get into a discussion of what that uh, is. But sure. uh, in the very brief, bittersweet uh, trees are uh, I, I plant trees that are specific to what Americans would understand as hard cider production. So I plant trees that are specifically uh, cultivated. The varietals are specifically cultivated for their perform, uh, performance in fermentation, uh, uh, storage, uh, and, and kind of like uh, aging. Mm-hmm. So there's a group of apples that have been particularly selected for those qualities. And that's what I grow in my orchard. Um, most of, I, I get even a little bit more niche than that, in that most of the apples and the varietals that I have planted on my farm are part of the English uh, 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 traditional cider making. So there's various regions in Europe who have cultivated varietals and and traditions around hard cider production. And my orchard tends to be uh, narrowly focused on West County or or English uh, bittersweet apples. Interesting. Yes. Like which varieties? Uh, Yarlington Mill, Stoke Red, Chisel Jersey, Brown Snout. They're varieties that are like, uh, you know, I could keep on going with that. You know, Somerset Red Streak, uh, you know, on and on and on. Uh, I, 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 I could, uh, uh, um, Bulmer's Norman, I don't know. I could keep on going. Uh, Dabinet, uh, on, you know, the more I have to, as I sink further, I'd have to like think longer for each varietal, but, uh, Suffice to say, there's dozens of different English varietals that I've uh, uh, cultivated on my land and grafted and, and, and uh, you know, taking care of over the past decade. Uh, and um, and uh, they are all uh, English, uh, what's understood as bittersweets. Um, yeah. to, to jump in the, that, that question of bittersweets, we have uh, all apples uh, sit on a, on a, triangle type chart where sweetness sits at one end um acids sit at one end and tannins sit on the other end and Mm -hmm. and bittersweet varietals tend to sit in the range of like having high acid and high tannins meaning that their performance in a in in a fermentation process lends itself towards uh, like a quality long-term uh, cider. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I ferment most of the apples that I grow naturally in an oak barrel with no additions, no, um, you know, no additives, no yeast pitches, no, you know, tertiary type of uh, uh, things that, you know, it's just juice in a barrel, but it turns into like a beautiful tasting, a, a, a bittersweet cider. So, um, sure. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So now I'm going to geek out here. So that <laughs> yeah, you know, I can give you, you, I feel like this is, we, we did like a general, like what's Mike's uh, principles that drives him. And now I feel like we're going to, we're about to jump into a geek session of cider, which oh, I'm yeah. thoroughly ready for. <laughs> oh yeah. I totally love that. So, so are you using, you're using the natural yeast off of the apples, right? You didn't, you said you don't pitch additional yeast. Yep. Yep. So, so there is uh there's a bung, and mm-hmm. I put juice in the bung and that's it. Really? Yes. Mm. So, so as I, uh, uh, it's funny. Um, I, I feel 
in my witness of anybody who's uh, uh, cultivated a deep relationship with a craft, a type of elegance arises, meaning that um, as you get to the highest echelons of any craft, you get a type of elegance that precludes a lot of action very specifically, but then does a very few amount of things very, very specifically and intentionally. So I do nothing except squeeze apples from an orchard into an oak barrel. And I, that's it. There's no additives. I wait. And then I bottle what comes out of the barrel. However, okay, sorry. (laughs) Many questions. Go ahead. Yeah. However, the way in which I do that is incredibly specific and Uh and full of an incredible amount of parameters um, that like we're not going to have enough time in our discussion for for me to cover them all. So it sounds very, very simple and elegant, almost mystifyingly so. But the way that I do it, um, it it would take you and I maybe two or three seasons for, I think, you to have the aha moment of like, oh, I understand what's happening here. And that would be like two or three seasons of me and you pressing cider together for you to like you know, and seeing the process through and bottling it and tasting it for, for the true aha to emerge. That's what it was for me. Um, Maybe more than that for me. Um, Mm -hmm. So, uh, so, so yeah. So uh, again, like any, I I believe that any craft at its absolute epoch is, or, you know, or, or pinnacle um, is it uh, refines a particular elegance, but that elegance by the casual observer is misunderstood. And so um, so starting there is like a, you know, I, I'm happy to talk about it all, but I want to encourage anybody who's like really like listens to this and it's like, boy, cider is something I'm interested in. You're going to have to find a living lineage or connection and then like work with that person to really get, I think, what I'm talking about. But I'll go through right. as much as I can with you tonight. Okay, great. Yeah, that sounds good. So you go straight to the oak barrel and you don't do like a primary and and stuff first i I primary in the oak barrel Mm -hmm. um so uh so i I primary in the oak barrel when uh so let's talk about the oak barrel uh prep i make sure that all of the cider from last year um is completely emptied out of the barrel and that the barrel has been cold water washed Mm -hmm. uh let to dry and then refilled with cold water dumped right before i put it in the mm. refilling with cold water like a week or two before I refill a barrel is going to swell all the joints and like preclude any pockets of like uh, oxygen that's like sitting or sediment or other things that are like sitting in the barrel. So I, I swell the barrel two to three weeks right. before I fill it with cold water and then I dump it. Mm-hmm. So the cold water on my farm quite interesting is that i live in sharon springs and you can tell by the name springs um that there's a uniqueness to our water we have like high uh uh, ambient sulfur and magnesium and lithium and like all kinds of interesting mineral profiles in our water Mm -hmm. it's only your guess and mine how that might interact like my swelling and, and preparation of my barrel i use french oak barrels those barrels have, uh, prior to cider making, been used in red wine making. So usually oh. uh, various Merlots and ca- you know cabs and other things. I find that those make the best barrel, uh, the best barrels for cider. Mm-hmm. So after a cold water rinse and then a cold water swell, I will uh, empty 
right before I fill them again. And I will fill them with juice off of my press. Um, uh, pressing, I feel like I'm talking about barrels right now. So pressing, I'm just going to leave out as like a whole other uh, a side of it. But for the barrels, I fill juice all the way up to the bung. Mm-hmm. I shake the barrel to maybe get a couple more burps. And then I fill it until it overflows. I have heavy weighted uh, valves bubblers, whatever you want to call them, right. that I will that I will press into the bung of the barrel at that point, and I will let a natural, cool fermentation happen, meaning wow. that I try not to let the temperature in the cider house like get much above 55. Hmm. That would be my ideal, and I work seasonally to make that happen. Right. So then the uh, f- fermentation happens, and um, uh, I, I the, that that there's enough agitation in the pressing process that I'm getting an aeration of what's in my barrel, meaning that I'm allowing enough oxygen to be ambiently in the barrel to allow fermentation to happen, and but yet I'm precluding all the air in any type of headspace, which is you'll hear other fermenters be like, oh no, you need headspace to ferment. Well, by pouring bucket after bucket into my barrel. I'm aerating my cider to give it enough oxygen to make the fermentation happen. I don't need any headspace. In -hmm. fact, if you leave headspace, what will happen is that you'll have the head of the cider ferment and then that head will sit and then it will fall back into the barrel. And so by me filling the barrel all the way up to the top with juice, when it ferments, I get all of the um, action of fermentation, all the volatile action that is happening um all the co2 that's produced in fermentation you know i I might get i might get a scientific terms wrong just uh, my my knowledge is colloquial but all of that will will bond to itself the surfactants and the other things that are like ambient the the particulates that are enmeshed in the uh in the pressing process uh the, the nasties and the yuck um will all get ejected out of the barrel because I've filled it up right to the bung. Mm-hmm. So instead of having the head, which if anybody's fermented before, you get the head that fills up and it's this frothy bit. And then that frothy bit falls back into the barrel. I eject by, by filling all the way up to the bung prior to uh, the uh, primary, I eject all of the head off the top of the cider. Mm-hmm. So and if you I, have any foam from pouring it, then all that... All that's taken on. care of and everything, it's all, right? It's all shot off the top, mm-hmm. and that during that primary fermentation, it's it's bond. There's a lot of bonding, and 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 <laughs> there's a lot of stuff happening, and so much of the stuff is getting thrown out of the top of the barrel. I then fill up the head again after the primary with a juice that I set aside that's likely gone through its own fermentation process, and I have a cold slow then the season is changing at that point and mm-hmm. i have a very cold slow secondary without actually racking off the barrel there's not much of a cake or a what do they call it there's a weird word for it but there's not much on the bottom of the barrel because i shot it all out the top oh, the leads yeah there you go yeah so i'm not really aging on leaves because i shot it off the top and i have this very cold slow secondary throughout winter mm-hmm. usually resulting in like sometime around January or February, there being residual sugar 
left in the barrel. It's like still kind of a, 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 a stuttering kind of, kind of very slow ferment. And uh, as long as I can bricks test the juice at that point and make sure that the juice isn't too sweet to tell you the truth at times I've been known to like not even bricks test and just be like, taste it and be like, okay, it's, we, we aren't going to blow up. I'll put it in a champagne bottle at that point and allow that final fermentation right out of the barrel. So there's a rack into a bottling tank. I'll cold water. Uh, I'm sorry. I'll cold weather crash that bottling tank to get like mm-hmm. one more set settlement, blow out the bottom uh, of that tank to kind of release whatever that intense cold settlement is and then bottle the rest and I'll allow a bottle condition to happen over spring, maybe carbonating and sometimes maybe not uh, what is uh, left in that, that champagne bottle. And so the champagne mm-hmm. bottle has got a thicker wall. Uh, uh, often uh, the, the engineering of the bottle can hold a bit of carbonation. And so, uh, and so that is uh, that is uh, the 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 barrel part or the fermentation part of like how I make cider. Now there's sure. the pre- there's the press, there's the vintage, um, there's everything in you know leading up to that. But I, I've explained to you how I you know the varietals you know <laughs> years of prep to get to that moment of like what happens in the barrel. Um, but again, I do something that took me a very long time to understand. I do something very elegant that doesn't take a lot of like intervention, but I do it under very, very specific parameters uh, mm-hmm. with a lot of tertiary elements feeding into the process. And so, um, and so I'm giving away all of the tricks and secrets uh, to traditional cider making right now, as they were given away to me. So mm-hmm. folks who are listening along, um, a great gift was given to me. And I hope that, uh, anybody who's interested in it, I feel beholden to like give that gift forward to them. So you'll read a lot in various fermentation books and people who are attempting to sell books and other things about many, many things you need to do yeast pitches and pH levels and, you know, and, and, it, and perhaps all of that is true. Um, I'd urge you to taste my cider as opposed to uh, 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 other things and just let the fruit speak for itself and, and see what you think. Um, wow. And, and so, uh, and so, um, you know, fermentation is quite easy. It's part of God's plan. Juice left all to itself will ferment all sure. by itself. And so mm-hmm. um, what we're doing is just uh, working within the parameters of that natural order and like uh, applying certain containers so we steer that 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 natural order and force in a particular way and then capture it at a very particular moment and then uh kind of elongate the uh the the con- uh, conditions and consequence that we're trying to create and so uh and so that's uh that's you know traditional natural cider making and that is the art that I've like been long engaged in and with and 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 know it quite well many, many seasons of testimony to, uh, to, and, and witness to, you know, that, that process. So do you end up with a pretty dry cider then overall, then, um, or semi-dry? Uh, it's very odd. Um, so yes, if you were to like bricks test most of my ciders, they would be exceedingly dry. Mm-hmm. However, um, I, uh, I oftentimes blend 
a bit of pear, which has a sugar, a sorbitol sugar in it, which may render a bit of sweet to a finished dry. Um, I may uh, also, um, you know, tan, a tannic and flavor composition may uh, impart like a tricking sweetness where you'll, you'll taste something that's sweet that actually is, you know, again, thrown on a brick scale, there's like no sugar in it, but, but it tastes sweet. So if you combine those two things, like a nice, long, full, well-developed tannin with a tiny bit of sorbitol from a bushel or two of, of, of good pears thrown in the mix, um, you can get something that maybe tastes medium, right? Uh, the traditional cider makers will have like dry, medium, and sweet, right? So you can, uh, and kind of, uh, say the traditional ciders and their final presentation fall in one of in one of those category categories medium ciders tend to be ones that like have a post fermentation residual sweetness where sweet is usually just like a blended cider they're basically mm-hmm. oftentimes blending finished product with fresh juice and just not giving the time for it to develop most of my ciders are dry um you know, but, but this one I'm drinking is like tonight is definitely medium. Um, whether it's pear, I couldn't, I kind of don't even remember whether it's like, you know, pear sorbitol or just, you know, beautiful, uh, medium Yarlington tannins, but it doesn't taste completely dry. I think we're familiar in America with like Northern spies or some other eating apple, you know, press into a carboy and then somebody drops EC 1118 champagne yeast on top of it. Yep. It like explodes and it's like the most dry thing you've ever tasted in the world at its completion. And so uh, traditional cider is a wholly different experience than, than I think mm-hmm. what most like a, a hobby hobby cider makers experience in America with like dropping champagne yeast on eating apples. You know, I'm, I'm slow fermenting, uh, mostly Saccharomyces, but like Brettamyces, long, cold ferment, complicated tannins in, 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 in long cultivated varietals with oftentimes high acid components that give it an, an intense mouthfeel. And so you get this, it's a very different experience from just like your punch in the face, dry, you know, American, you know, cider. Wow. That's great. So the using wine barrels, do you get any, does it impart anything to the, the cider for like example around here, the microbrews use wine barrels and then you get kind of a, their, their beer is somewhat whiny. Right. And uh, what, uh, how do you have any of that, that it is imparted to the cider? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but 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 I would stress that what I'm trying to create with my barrels is just a neutral sure. environment, and a barrel just gives like a nice round to give a, a to give a a, a a a a nice pattern to the turbulence of fermentation. A barrel, mm-hmm. a 59 gallon barrel, gives like a nice container uh, for for the turbulence. Uh, gives a nice set. For like uh, uh, you know the, the the work of filling, so I'm filling lots of smaller vessels than like one big one. Again, precludes that headspace. Um, I've actually selected barrels increasingly so. And once you get like three or four seasons into a barrel, if you've 
quirked it, right? For a neutral environment, really, I'm not trying to have the barrel do anything to the cider. And when I first started, I was all, you know, let's get some whiskey barrels. And my cider ended up tasting like lighter fluid. Yeah. Uh, I, I explained it as like high. Um, you know, there was, there were, uh, I have all types of like colloquial descriptions for how I taste cider, but cider out of whiskey barrels was like high and too high, like, like a, like a penny whistle blown in your ear. It wasn't pleasant. And right. so, and so now I, um, I have red wine barrels, but they're like three or four years old and it's really a neutral condition. I, my hope is that the barrel doesn't really impart that much outside of like a proper vessel for the turbulence of fer- fermentation and for the volume that's uh, somewhat consistent to like human scale production on a press. So, mm-hmm. um, so it gives the oaky goodness without imparting any other stuff. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, or or, or, not, or not even you know if you were to use like a brand new uh, oaky barrel on cider, uh, it, it tastes like a door. But uh, oh. cider doesn't doesn't have like the tannic or alcohol level backbone to handle a brand new oak barrel like a chardonnay wood or something else from you know some winemaker you know the 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 california chardonnays right have this like heavy oak thing going on like honestly a brand new oak barrel on cider tastes terrible Uh, again uh in the same way that like a whiskey barrel is is way too of a high note for me a uh a brand new oak barrel that hasn't run through a, a a previous fermentation for cider it's like it's like a door it's it's like a carpentry studio it's like not not what i want and so um i really like i i find that the merlots and the heavier reds um they have a very high tannic profile and so they leach the the, the oak tannins out of the barrel i'm mm-hmm. looking for a neutral vessel it's more the 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 shape of the barrel for the turbulence of a fermentation to make sure a really nice, cold, slow fermentation is happening. If I get too big of a vessel, the outsides will get cold and the juice won't circulate. But if I have like a nice 59 gallon vessel, I'll get like a good turbulence all throughout that slow period that I was talking about. So it's more the volume um, that I'm working in. I, I also, it's not like hard to fill a 59 gallon barrel off of a press you know mm-hmm. takes takes about you know it takes a lot of apples you know for a single you know person to just kind of pick but it's doable where if you have like a 200 gallon vessel like some of these you know beer fermenters comical stuff that people do is very hard to like preclude the oxygen in the way i do to get the right tur- turbulence uh, they're they're steel walled so they like the outside of the juice might freeze you know <laughs> like it's like i I want um, the 59-gallon vessel works good in a whole uh, range of ways, but but one of them is not imparting an oak flavor. I'm really looking for a neutral vessel. A big oak on cider is like the cider doesn't that doesn't have. Cider doesn't stand up to a big oak, and that's definitely not what I'm trying to create. I much, I just like the neutralness and the size of the vessel and the shape of the vessel. I can, I can cork it and roll it around, you know. <laughs> like it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a whole lot of other reasons why I like a barrel, uh, an oak barrel, uh, rather than like any imp- imparting of like oak flavors. Mm-hmm. 
do you rotate the barrels as you go through the season then through the uh, fermenting season no not really what i'll do is I'll, um if if i do any type of like rotating like that i may if i've had like a heavy bottle condition i might flip the bottles over Mm -hmm. like if i have a heavy bottle condition that results in like a significant amount of lees in the bottle i might like take those bottles and flip them over at one point in the year kind of like you would see a champagne rat maker like rat rack and rotate bottles i'll just flip i'll just flip them over in a case and i find Mm -hmm. that that dissipates a little bit of it into like you know the, the more times you do that the more you're kind of dissipating the particulates and so you might end up with like uh a little less lees at the end don't ask me how it works but but this is what i found sometimes it's like i'll flip it over and then serve it the next couple days so it's suspended rather than like someone seeing a cake on the bottom of a bottle because people are like whoa what's that you know yeah Um, exactly yeah yeah they'd rather drink something cloudy than drink something with a cake on the bottom so it which which I understand, but that being said, like most of my ciders are not, you know, they're 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 clear, you know. I'm I'm I'm, I'm talking of like, a, uh, you know, standout situations. Usually, right. usually I just uh, I might combine a barrel or two into my bottling tank, which is a conical stainless steel thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I might like blend a barrel or two into that tank, and then bottle that um quite often i do that i you know will fill like two two and a half three barrels into a single conical um and then just have a marathon of bottling it all so you'll taste one and it may be a little more drier and then you'll mix it with some others yep 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 or i'll say hey you know th- this one's got a got got a bite or a twist and it could be leveled out with this one which came out like beautiful and if i were to like Oh, and this one's like way too tannic. I put a lot of chisel jersey in it. Um, why don't I spread those tannins out across this other one and and then I'll then I'll blend something down that is, you know, that, that people will like. Um right. and so chisel I, jersey apple, is that what you said? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Chisel jersey is like uh it's like it's like a it's like a one to five by the apples as far as like chiseled like 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 uh it's it's a heavy bittersweet, meaning that there's heavy right. tannins in it, really intense, and so you can blend it de- blend it down with sweet apples, like one to five almost. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas like a Yarlington Mill is more of a medium body, and I could put up a single barrel of Yarlington Mill, and it would taste great, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so that's that's the different varietals and getting to know them, and then of course back to the orchard, each one of those varietals have different growth habits and. Um, you know, the, the, I, I find the Arlington Mill like blooms for an enormous duration of time um, where the, the chisel jersey will throw a bloom like right at the end of the season. And the Somerset Red Streak will throw blooms like very early in the season and need to be picked. So you're also playing with like the varietals that are coming out of the orchard and trying to balance the pressing time. It's actually the game I'm playing right now. Most mm-hmm. of my Somerset Red Streaks are hitting the orchard floor right now but I don't feel like I want to press until not this weekend, but the next uh, September 30th is going to be my first press because I feel like the Arlington's and the Brown snouts and the reds and the uh, Stoke reds are going to line up at a perfect time, probably have enough fruit in my orchard for like one barrel of those three. 
And I think it's, I think it's a good mix. Yarlington, medium body, uh, uh, brown snouts, medium, you know, medium tannins, medium body, and then the stoke red to like really sharpen it. I'm hoping to like do an exclusive of those three, but maybe I have to blend some eating apples. Maybe I have to blend some other things. So, mm-hmm. um, so, so do you, do you press pretty quickly after harvest or do you let them sit a little bit before you yeah. uh, press them? I'll, I'll tup for about a, it's called tupping. Um, so uh, picking an apple and letting it sit to like uh, soften. I, I think, I think realistically no more sugar develops. I think sugar only have development only happens while it's still on the tree, mm-hmm. but um, the cell walls of the apple uh, will break down a bit. The, 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 the hard parts of the apple will break down a bit if you tup them and you will, you will get like a, a easier squeeze of juice. Uh, if you tup an apple for a little while and you want to, sure. tup, you want to tup them, like leave them in a pile, but make sure you're not getting green spots or mold or other things that are going to take you right down vinegar road. Um, <laughs> you want to, yeah, you want to like, uh, you want to get them soft, but not get them rotten. Right. You make yeah. vinegar on also? I don't yep. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I make vinegar, uh, vinegar for me is like a end road result of failure and laziness on my part. You know, all cider wants to become vinegar, especially in, sure. in, in the traditional, uh, you know, cider cellar and cider orchard, that's the natural path. That's the natural order. And so, um, and so there's plenty of times where I like, maybe I bottle two thirds of a barrel and I just, that's, that's enough. I can't finish because I'm tired and whatever else it is. And, and that, that one last third gets left and then, Oh darn, I come back to it three months later and you know, there's a gelatinous head on top of it and it's vinegar now. Um, Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I, I squeeze something and boy, it was muddy and I just didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't do the best I could have in cleaning them off before I put them through the press. And we moved through cider pretty fast and became vinegar. And, you know, it's just acetic and well, that barrel and that cider is retired. What's funny is that, um, is that I can like, you know, I'm, I'm, I can legally sell vinegar for, like it's more financially advantageous if I was just a vinegar farm because I can't legally sell cider because I need all these crazy permits to sell alcohol, but I right. can sell vinegar for just about the same amount that I, if not more then I would be able to like market cider. So it's kind of funny, like failure in this, in this realm is like rendering a product that is, that is just as marketable as like any, as, as any cider. And, um, and and just as tasty too, as far as like um things, you know, I lose the barrel is is, is the part that's a bummer. Once so, I so make... yeah, once it turns to vinegar, then you have to you have you can't use that barrel for something else, right? No, I can't go back to cider with it. Pretty much retire it. I mean, if I want to stay like sulfite free, I have a bunch of retired barrels right now, and I'm always kind of scratching my head of like I don't want to use sulfites in my uh in my cider process. But I'm like, boy, could I maybe rehab these barrels if I like sulfured them for like, uh, you know, two or three seasons, not ever adding sulfur directly to my cider, but like sulfur blasted the cider. But then how does that work when I tell people I don't ever add anything? Right. So like, yeah, 
it's like I wouldn't actually ever add sulfur to my actual cider. Never. But if I like sulfur blast a barrel at a rehab, it's probably like, okay. Would it even work? You know, to be determined. Um, the barrels are about 140 bucks a pop. And so it's, it's, it's hard to be like, all right, I messed this one up. I just going to retire it, especially as I get years into this and I'm like, you know, my, my original 20 barrels are, are, are dwindling. You know, I only usually fill like, you know, four to five barrels a year. So I still have some that are like, you know, good and in rotation, but I'm like, boy, I'd like to bring this barrel back into rotation. So yeah, you know, it's a, it's a test, you know, purity is a funny thing. This, I feel like anybody um, who, uh, who uh, thinks about things enough finds that that line of like, what's, you know, totally pure and what's not is like a head scratcher eventually, you know? So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm as natural and pure as, as you get though. So with, with in terms of cider. So uh, in the spring, do you do a lot of grafting in your orchard? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, let's talk about propagation and grafting because that's really the the root of it. You could jump into cider at like any point. I just gave a workshop in Indiana about orcharding and I was like, it's funny. Mm-hmm. I don't know like where to start at this point because it's just like a it's like a, a I could jump into cider and and fermentation and right. Uh, orchard maintenance and pruning and planting trees and uh, orchard prep and uh, propagation and grafting like I could jump into any one of those things and just pick up the cycle because it's like all like a big cycle so as I press fruit seeds come off my press Um, I'm going to speed up and and uh, spare you all the things I've historically gone through and just explain to you what I do in the contemporary because I think you'd find it most interesting. So I squeeze my apples. Um, I use a a maceration method, a a, a, a grinding method um, to not use like too technical a term that that smushes my apples, but it doesn't, it doesn't uh, break the seeds. So Mm. when I, after I press my apples, um, I have my pomace left over and in that pomace is whole seeds. Um, and I mix that pomace with soil two to one, more or less. And then I put those in garden beds, uh, raised garden beds. And I get mm-hmm. hundreds of pips in the next season, tiny little apple trees. Just I uh, select the best of those pips, um, meaning usually just the fastest growing, just the biggest ones. I, I eyeball it and I lay them out in a row. Uh, I, I step about two feet in between each one and I lay them out in a row again, close to a water source so I can water them that first year in the garden bed. I water them that second year, uh, on a, on, on a line of pips, I will water them. Um, then usually I get a tree like about my knee, probably higher than that. Maybe even my hip the next year. Um, at which point I will graft them and move them out to the field. I use I pretty much use exclusively a cleft graft now. So we'll leave it to your audience to look up what a cleft graft is. Um, I I uh, I use the um, Grafters Handbook. I don't have it in front of me, but that's the book I use. So you can you can Google that too. You can Google a cleft graft and, and Grafters Handbook. 
but those are that's the book I use, and that's the um and that's the uh the the grafting cut I use. There's a lot of different cuts that one could use. And right. so I'll graft all those pips in a row and I'll move them out to a 12 by 8 grid at that point. And that's where they'll live until I get fruit. Um, you know, God bless me with a situation where uh, or or may God bless me with a situation where my eight foot grid is too tight and I have to cut trees out in between, you know, I'll, I'll probably be dead by the time that that's, uh, by that's the case. So eight, 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 eight foot spacing, 12 foot lane. Um, because I'm using seedling stock, uh, and not using like a cultivated root stock, the uh, final expression of each tree, who, who knows what it might be. While I ensure the varietal with the graft, I have no idea uh, how tall it might be before it expresses fruit or other things. So there's like a wild card with the uh, with the rootstock, uh, and I just uh, continue to plant on an on an eight pattern grid, casting a wide genetic net and letting attrition be part of my process. And what survives survives. I mean, there's plenty of uh, I forget where you are, Scott, but for me, Kansas, if I. Yeah. Okay. So Kansas. So if I right in the middle, that's great. Um, so if I, so if I walk around my, uh, my, my kind of wild or fallow fields here, there's a bunch of fields on the back hill here that are too steep for machines to reach. So they've kind of been fallow for the past hundred years. Um, there, I think they were at one point cultivated by draft power, but now they're Nobody can get a machine there, so they're just foul. But there's tons of apple trees in those fields. So it's an indication to me that a wide enough uh, genetic net casted over a long enough period of time is going to re- render like a resilient fruit set. And it's totally possible to do what I'm doing. It's just I'm just thinking different. I'm not driven by debt cycles or whatever mm-hmm. else it is that drives people to like produce fruit in three years, please. Um, I'm just yeah. a little patient than that. And so... um. And so that's what I do, you know, 12 foot lane, eight foot grid, uh, seedling stock grafted over with uh, English bittersweets that I'm pulling from my previous trees. I do with that. I do usually about like in between like 100 to 300 trees a year. And I've been at it for a decade. You know, give me three more in this spot. And I mean, I already have a ton of fruit that I fill barrels with. But like, you know, give me another. uh, There'll be more fruit than you know, myself and all of my clan could deal with. Um, so, you know, so you use the pips for the seedling stock and then you you graft on the, the uh, English apples onto that, right? You got it. Yep. 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 Mm -hmm. And then I have like, you know, I'm making it sound like all I do is English apples. Like I have a, I have a good bit of eating apples. You know, I do all the homestead stuff too. So I have a good bit of like, heritage american apples that i just might have put on because i'm a geek and then um and then i have a good bit of like high production almost modern ones that i've grafted on um liberties and enterprises and like just production apples like give me fruit you know and then i have all but the majority though is to be to be uh you know to, to paint a clear picture the majority is just cider apples you know um uh Yarlington's quite a bit. Oh, I also have a, I also have a, uh, as I increasingly got into this, I went and like uh, took care of other people's homestead orchards. And I actually identified bittersweet fruit 
um, since I got good at like knowing what a bittersweet was, I identified like homestead local bittersweet fruit that like who knows what it is, but you right. get that like you get an old homestead orchard and there's like a grade of 16 trees and the two in the corner, boy, they turn red as soon as you take a bite out of them and they taste very, very bitter. Oh, okay, those are cider apples and they're likely wow. included in the grid because they're you know, they were intentful, you know, back in the day, it was something that people intended. And there was a, the, 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 what I'm describing wasn't like a mystery or some like lost art. It was kind of every day. And so I've grafted quite a, not quite a few, maybe half a dozen of bittersweets that I found in various farmstead, you know, homestead uh, orchards around here. Um, some I've named lovingly. And uh, actually there's like two of them that I use I keep on grafting because I use them in my blends quite a bit. They're absolutely delicious. I've, you know, found nothing that performs like them. So, um, so awesome. know, yeah, it's fun. There's a bit of a restoration, uh, go, going on, uh, you know, not, not just in technique, but also in, in varietal too. Mm -hmm. So did you get hit with the frost during the blossom yeah, stage? cumulative hours this year it wasn't blossom blossom was was super big this mm -hmm. year and i had a, an amazing fruit set and it wasn't even a single time where i got like a deep freeze it was cumulative frost hours which the way apples work is like you count the cumulative hours uh, over the course of a season where you might experience frost mm -hmm. and I, I i did hit the cumulative level um with frost and i lost probably two thirds of everything in my orchard this year. So this year is a tough year. Uh, yeah. Disappointing because blossom was just like, so awesome. Blossom was so awesome. You know, it, it, I knew it was stronger this year, almost, I want to say than I've ever seen it before. But, um, but then once everything was set, those cumul cumulative hours just caught up and yep. Every many trees dropped most of their fruit this year. So bit, bit yeah. of a heartache but uh you know he gives and he takes away and i just stay grateful and keep on working and 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 there's a there's a there's a lesson and a pattern greater um that i'm ever going to understand so just uh chin up next season yeah i got apples on only one side of the tree because the other side got just cold enough where yeah it, uh, when it was blossomed out the blossoms fell off yeah it's fun and, uh, there's a there, there's a bunch of my trees where there's just apples in the middle of the tree yeah so like so like the frost set, you know, everything on the outside, but there was enough warmth. Just it didn't get all the way inside the tree. Um, so there's like a couple of trees where you look at it and there's just apples like in inside the tree, if that makes sense. And the rest of the, you know, the, the exterior branches didn't had, uh -huh. had, you know, didn't keep the fruit. So we have a chestnut farm down the street. And uh, they basically said, we're not taking orders because we're not sure what we can even what we can even uh, meet the orders this year because right. of the frost. And yep. they have some chestnuts. I can see them from the street. But but yeah, they're uh, they're hurt pretty bad, too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it happened to a lot of people this year. And, you know, it is it is there's always years like this, you know, for one re reason or another. And, you know, I a wild trees set on a biannual you know thing and then weather lines up on a biannual thing so if you right. put those two together and they're offset that's four years you know mm -hmm. so 
every four years you get a good set is is kind of what those numbers say to me. So that's uh, pretty consistent for what I've experienced. Every four years, I'm overwhelmed by fruit. So you bet better work hard on that year, and uh, and the rest of the years maybe I'll get a barrel or two, and it's great. So yeah, um, I have a lot of uh, I I've, I have two trees that are pretty much the first year um with uh fruit i think they had like one or two or three apples last year but this year they're decked out one is supposed to be a uh, golden delicious but uh it looks like it's arkansas black and the <laughs> other one is a so i don't know if it got fertilized by the arkansas black or, or what but yeah you yeah. love those nursery errors too they tell you you they tell you you're getting one thing and then you know, 10 years later, you get something else and you're like, boy, nursery men. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. My big problem was the stun method. So, you know, the homesteaders talk about the stun method and they don't tell you that, you know, the podcast and all that, but they don't tell you that uh stun method is for seedlings. It's not for grafted apples and grafted trees because they'll just, they got to be irrigated to some extent or they won't work. And I've gone through so many apples that have died because I didn't irrigate them or whatever else. So <laughs> I, I dry farm. So I, so I, so I, I water uh, my first two years. Like I said, I keep it close to a water source, but once they get out on that eight, uh, uh, 12 grid, eight, 16 grid, depending on where we are on my farm. Um, I, I do not water, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know if that's done. I don't, I'm not quite familiar with what stun means, but I, I, I sense that you're saying dry farm without fertilization, you know, without any kind of yeah. fertilizer. Um, and I do do that. I, I, that, that is what I do. You know, I think the, the odd one um, in my orchard is that I, I graze sheep around oh. trees at that point. So I don't know how that affects things. You know, they're getting a dump of fertilizer there. I'm controlling the grass, but I yeah, do not great. Water. Um, So perhaps it's not full stun, whatever that is. I don't, I don't know it. But I do dry farm um, mm-hmm. after those first, you know, two, three years. Um, so I, I I water the heck out of them. I water them. I don't water the heck out of them. I water them like a garden crop in right. the same way that I would water my cabbages or my tomatoes or, you know, they're, they're in there with them. So I water them with them, you know. But after uh, uh, that phase and they make it out to the grid, um, you know, God's plan, uh I don't, I don't water them. I think the biggest mistake that I make, and I still continually make it like my brown snouts, I didn't this year and I suffer for it, is that I ha- I don't thin them. Um, I have, I, I, you know, my brown snouts are all like, you know, like this big this year. And I'm like, right. oh man, if I would have thinned them, I would have got it uh, like a, an actual good crop, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So they're late, they, they blossom late. So they missed all the frosts. And so they'd actually did like set a really good fruit set. But I kind of I think I, you know, a heavy heart from losing so much fruit. I like, was like, I ain't even going out, you know, in the orchard for a while. And so that they, they all set up and I walked out, you know, not too long ago. And I was like, Oh, man, all the brown snouts are just like these tiny little nothings with like no juice in them. And boy, if I would have thinned them, I would have actually had a crop, you know? And so, um, you know, live and learn. It, it is, it is what it is. I'll still press them all and see what I get out of it. But, um, but that's one of my biggest things is you got to thin your fruit. You got, you got, you got to thin your fruit, um, as, especially as you get more successful as years go on, you gotta, you gotta do it. That sounds good. Okay. Mike, give them, 
give uh, give your contact information and where how folks can get a hold of you and some more about the Catholic land movement. Yeah, so everything I've said is uh, specific to you know central New York. So there's going to be different people in different places where apples and other things are going to work in different ways. Uh, sure. Everything from fermentation to you know cultivation and propagation. So um so the best thing you can do is find local uh, fellas near you who have long term success, and then uh, you know ask to stand on their shoulders. So um, as far as like you know who I am or where I am, that's that's important to say about apples. It's really about your local. Um, you know, those guys will have the best uh, answers for you. So you know be inspired by what I said here, but talk talk to your old timers local to figure out what works for you and then uh i'm in yep i'm in central new york um you can uh find me if you want to get a hold of me and you want to talk anything from apples to theology to you know tactics and strategy to uh restore um you know uh, our, our our temporal order and pointed towards christ um you can find me at uh catholiclandmovement.info send me an email you'll find my phone number that's the uh that's that's like the phone in my pocket so um so give the phone phone number a call um beautiful volunteer organization we'd love to we'd love to work with you so um so give me a call there again it's catholiclandmovement.info uh and then you know if you're in if you're in the central upstate new york uh you know give me a buzz maybe you can stop by we can have a glass of cider together uh, be happy to meet you at the gate That's great. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on again. You bet. And check out Thriver News. It's thriving community news without the noise. It's where Perpet and I have more long-form articles about different topics, including homesteading, intentional living. For example, some of the things we've had here is how to make comfrey salve or balm on the fly, Uh, the challenge of being present, basically musings from around the fire pit, Teaching kids that failure is an option. A food forest walkthrough of year three, what worked and what didn't. So check it out at thriver.news. And if you like this episode, consider joining the Thriving Patreon, where you can get early episodes, extras, outtakes, ebooks, as well as lots of bonuses. That's at patreon.com slash thrive in the future. Thank you for listening to Thrive in the Future podcast. If you like what you hear, please click that like or subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at Thrive in the Future and also go to thriveinthefuture.com.